2019's almost done. Does anybody remember what happened? I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jarrett, good to see you. How are you doing? Good to see you, too. Merry Christmas. Right back at you. Um, so we're here for our final show of 2019. It is difficult, as you just mentioned, to remember everything that's happened in any calendar year on any topic, but especially this has been a crazy year in New York politics, and we're here to sum it up with our top 10 stories of the year. That's right. And of course, we look forward to 2020 being perhaps even crazier. So we're taking this moment to look back on the big stories, some of which we talked about here on the show and covered certainly on our sites, uh, some that got a lot of coverage elsewhere as well. Uh, stories that were big this year and, and most likely the stories that will have the longest resonance and kind of echo effect uh, in 2020 and beyond. And we took a very scientific approach to coming up with our top 10 list, of course, uh, which is basically just a few emails back and forth between the two of us. But uh, you put together a great initial list, and then I helped tinker with it a little bit. If we missed anything, let us know. Uh, yes. But we tried to put together a list of 10 important stories. Some of them are a little bit more like big topics that were discussed and have multi-parts to them. But really, um, even though it was sort of the quiet year of the four-year cycle in terms of elections in New York, it was a really, really momentous year in terms of policy and politics and government in New York. Um, and I'm excited to break down this whole list. Should we get started? Let's start it. And I think it starts, story number one is the effects of Democratic control on Albany and the wave of legislation that came. I mean, this time last year, we were previewing that, talking about the potential, talking about at that point what we thought was an enormous agenda that they probably wouldn't get through. And they got through a lot of it. A lot. It really... You know, the Democrats taking control of the state Senate, matching that with the Democratic control of the Assembly, and of course, a Democratic governor and Governor Cuomo. First time there's been that trifecta in a very long time, especially a functional one um, in Albany. And really, they passed an incredible amount of stuff. Even so, that the governor is still wading through hundreds of he bills hasn't signed that he's got to get yeah. to by the end of the year. So there were huge, big ticket items, other smaller scale stuff. But if you know, we've said I've said this on this show several times before. If you name a sort of issue area, they did something big on it. I mean, it totally. was almost across the board. They did things. They didn't quite get to marijuana legalization and a couple other things, but really an immense amount of things on reproductive rights, the environment, criminal justice, transit, sexual harassment laws. I mean, right. LLC, just, loophole, gun control uh, across the board. Really remarkable. And then, of course, you know, that also then got into um, this like campaign finance commission, which we covered recently and some of the drama around that. And we can come back to that. But really, they, they did at least something on almost everything. It was really remarkable. Even marijuana, they did a decriminalization move as opposed to the legalization. I mean, they did something on almost everything. Now, Republicans are going to say they swung way too far to the left. And this is why we need balanced government in Albany. That aside for a second, it was just a incredibly momentous year for what came out of state government. Also had some fascinating political dynamics in terms of Governor Cuomo reacting to the new reality with with all the Yeah, it wasn't control. always all fun and games. And I think, uh, you know, when you compare it to the previous time the Democrats had control of the state Senate briefly in 2009, Nine, 10, 2010, yeah. and what happened then with the, the coup and really, obviously that was a different time. The economy was in much worse shape. The, the budget was in terrible shape. Um, there was less room to work in, but they did far less, accomplished far less. 
And that was a talking point for Republicans for years, which is if you hand over the Democrats, this is what's going to happen. Here you had a very different situation, a relatively flush economy, and not just a Democratic majority, but a very sizable one, and one that had a decided progressive tilt. And what was interesting was, looking back over the course of our show, a lot of the people we had on in 2018 who were running to unseat members uh, of the IDC took leadership positions in this, you know, newly emboldened caucus, whether it's Zellner Myrie, uh, Jessica Ramos, and others as well, kind of leading the charge on some of this legislation. Right, and you just reminded me of, like, a variety of other categories of things they passed because those two legislators had a hand in the election and voting reforms that were immense, uh, e-bike legalization, farm workers', farm workers yep. rights, exactly. So... Um, really, and and it was a lot of it was driven, as you just indicated, by some newer New York City members who had undis, unfe, uh, uh, unseated the IDC members, including Alessandro Biaggi, who obviously took out the big fish, Jeff Klein. Um, but you also had the leadership in Andrew Stewart Cousins, who does not represent the city, and it was very interesting to see her um, manage her new perch. Um, in some ways, the Senate Democrats were pushing the agenda harder and further left than the Assembly Democrats, which was a very new dynamic uh, in some ways, not at all. And in other ways, you had some of the Senate Democratic majority, especially those on Long Island, taking a few votes that were interesting as we look ahead to the 2020 election year and whether Democrats can keep that majority, which just about everybody thinks they can, but will they grow it or will it recede a little bit? And that, you know, things related to like passing driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants, you know, how will that land in some of the suburban uh, swing districts? So there were a lot of different political dynamics happening right. at once. And obviously, you know, the seeds being laid or, or sown in this year uh, for a potentially different fiscal environment for the 2020 discussion around the Medicaid spending and other things that are coming up now. But obviously, uh, one of the biggest stories in Albany we've broken out as, as number two on our list, and that is the sweeping regulation, sweeping reform of the rent regulations, um, a really kind of... 180-degree turn in terms of how the emphasis of that law is and the power in those laws shifting from landlords to tenants, getting you know rid of vacancy decontrol and the vacancy bonus, uh, preferential rent, sharply uh, scaling back major capital improvements, individual apartment improvements, um, and, and really a host of other reforms too, everything from, from harassment laws to mobile homes. Um, after the 90s being a decade when Landlords won a tremendous swing of the laws in their favor, and really the previous part of the century more or less standing pat. This was a massive, massive change. And you know, just again to be clear, we're, we're separating this out as its own story, separate from all the other Albany stuff, because of how big a deal and how long the fight you know has been around this. And of course, the other theme it plays into is the power of the real estate industry, the landlord lobby. I mean just these these immense themes that that really shifted power dynamics in 2019 that that had been pretty static for a while and this was another area where you saw some of the really tricky dynamics around governor Cuomo and the legislature and Cuomo not easily being able to play assembly democrats off of senate republicans as he had for so much of his tenure and so that was really interesting to watch where he sort of kicked back and said 
I favor all these really strong reforms. I'll sign whatever the legislature can agree to because he thought there was a bit more hesitancy among some members of the legislature than it turned out there ultimately was. And so they passed a sweeping set of reforms to rent regulations, which impact a million apartments. I mean, that is massive. One of the interesting things there, and I I don't know what you think on this, but we've even seen, you know, some pretty stalwart supporters of reform say they're wondering if this went a little bit too far and would might need to be scaled back a little bit in 2020. And I think that'll be a bigger theme that we need to see in the next year is whether the Democrats in Albany do tinker with some of what they did in 2019. Yes, from the earliest um, hours, you know, some people in the de Blasio administration and elsewhere raising questions about things like major capital improvements and whether that had eliminated some of the latitude landlords needed to move in. That talk has subsided somewhat. I think there was initially kind of a period of buyer's remorse, and now we've retreated to sort of see what plays out. But um, yes, I wouldn't be surprised if there is some push by some people to tinker in the next in the next year. And that doesn't mean it'll happen. And the same thing, I think we're going to see a, a big conversation continue on criminal justice reform, which we which we dealt with on a recent show, of course. And, you know, these are the types of things in Albany, there can be a lot of uh, huffing and puffing, and then nothing gets done, or a bunch of tweaks of various things are jammed together in a budget bill that passes in the middle of the night, and then everybody's dealing with the fallout of that. So, you know, we'll deal with that as it as it comes. And then there was story number three. This battle to save our Earth will be won or lost in our lifetime. There's no second chance. Don't back down in the face of a bully. Confront him. Take him on. As president, I will take on the wealthy. I will take on the big corporations. I will not rest until this government serves working people. As mayor of the largest city in America, I've done just that. De Blasio for president, guys. Donald Trump must be stopped. I've beaten him before, and I will do it again. I'm Bill de Blasio, and I'm running for president because it's time we put working people first. That was Mayor de Blasio announcing his candidacy for president, uh, uh, an idea that had been bounced around for, it felt like, since the moment he took office in 2014, uh, had been raised a few times since then, and obviously there was increasing speculation, which then he made uh, made official that day with the uh, publication of the online ad and an appearance on, I think it was Good Morning America, to uh, launch his, his trial balloon, which did not which never floated too high or, or too far. It was a very odd and really embarrassing four-month adventure. He was in it late. He got out early. Uh, he was basically in the race from something like May to September. Um, it did not go well for him. He was able to rely on some you know, traditional donors uh, being the mayor of, of folks in the city who want things from him and some of his longtime allies, but he was not able to really make a dent in the polls to really get that much positive attention, and he wasn't able to get the fundraising going. He made a couple of appearances on the debate stage by hitting the very, you know, sort of low bars that they set for the initial debates, but then he started to miss the debate thresholds and pulled the plug. Um, It was a curious thing where he took a really long time to decide. He probably should have just gone with his interest in running earlier and jumped in full bore, but he didn't. And he really landed in the race with a thud and and never went anywhere. 
Yeah, I think not knowing what his goals were, because they are so mysterious, makes it hard to evaluate just how big a failure this was, even if even even was a failure by his own personal measurement. Okay. I think for the city, it certainly felt like there was a lot of distraction there at a time when a lot of important things were happening around NYCHA and other stuff. Um, and, you know, I think, I wonder if 20 years from now, when people are writing the books about de Blasio, whether this will loom as large as John Lindsay's failed presidential campaign in terms of being like a real black eye for the mayor. I mean, in that case, I've seen people actually thought he might have had a chance at some point. No one really thought that about de Blasio. Um, to some degree, the people who loathed de Blasio, I think, loathed him before he ran for president and still do. The people who are yeah. decidedly of mixed opinion of him are just as mixed. Um, but it was certainly a... Um, a strange, strange venture. Well, when the field is already 20-plus and he jumps in and he's he's polling at 1%, you know, it almost gives this quality to it, like you were saying about Lindsay. At one point, there was some expectation that he could really go somewhere in the race. There was never really that expectation with de Blasio as he flirted with it a little bit and then jumped in. So it was almost like, you know, he was a little bit of an afterthought all along and then just sort of quietly exited the race and everybody kept moving on with everything. So, you know, I don't know how much it will be really discussed in the big picture for him. Although when you declare your candidacy for president, you know, that needs to sort of be mentioned in the first paragraph of, of the history books when you're written about, right? If you're an elected official or anybody. Um, so, you know, the idea that he had a short-lived and failed presidential campaign in 2019 will probably be at least a, a, an important sort of highlight when the legacy is written. What the campaign also did bring up was a bit more of us wrestling with what the legacy is starting to look like. And that was where, you know, it was very interesting to have a lot of the journalists who've been covering him regularly take take a bit of a step back to try to shape for a national audience a bit and other journalists, how's this guy actually done? What are the positives? What are the negatives? We know that the Eric Garner case was hap- you know, was really um, happening. The the results of that were going on when he was running, so that became a piece of the puzzle uh, for him. Yeah, despite the being a minor candidate with almost no chance, he was about the only one who ever got heckled at the debate by people yeah. because he was a guy who was in an executive position and dealing with that very difficult issue. One thing that surprised me was that he had a couple decent ideas during the campaign. I thought the idea of an international workers' bill of rights as an antidote to some of the anti-trade fervor um, it was interesting. I thought that the focus on automation was was interesting too. I don't know about the robot tax exactly, but I think that was. But he didn't lead with that. He led with this idea, this line he'd been trying for months about. There's plenty of money in the world or in the U.S. just in the wrong hands. Um, and then the policy stuff came later. I thought that if he really wanted to make a difference in the process, he would have led with a strong policy edge. Um, it was just curious that wasn't that didn't happen. The whole thing seems to have been strangely conceived. Right, and he did everything so traditionally in a lot of ways with all these visits to Iowa and New Hampshire. I'm sure in the other states. And I'm not saying you don't do that, but he also, you know, he could have reimagined a campaign a little bit to try to make waves, you know, be the sort of urban agenda mayor and just visit a bunch of cities with his, you know, his outline of his plan for how to, you know, enhance cities across the country. Here's some of the things we've done in New York. Here's how we'll do it. Even smaller cities in places like Iowa, you could you could do that type of thing. Just something creative. Um, and it really just wasn't part of, of how they approached the, the campaign. I think... Uh, 
lastly, on, on de Blasio, you know, one of the interesting things about him getting out on the national stage and then coming back is this question about, is he reestablishing any sense that he really wants the current job that he has? Because he raised even further questions that were already there mm-hmm. about how much he really is into his job. Right. A job he'll have for two more two more years. And obviously, one of the things that is on his plate to fix um, or to make some progress toward fixing is story number four for us, NYCHA. A story for many years, a story for many years for Mayor de Blasio. This year, the big one of the big headlines was that the settlement with the feds was sealed and a federal monitor uh, Im- imposed. A-, a big step for the authority, and we've seen since then uh, a slow drip by drip of announcements of uh, plans for doing some uh, rebuilding and revamping of the infrastructure that's deteriorated. The state finally moving to release its money. So some measure of progress in NYCHA. But we are now seeing winter having arrived in full force, exactly what that's going to look like in terms of people's services. Right. And it seems it seems early on like this winter, you know, things are a bit better than in some recent past winters because they've they've done, you know, they have some new protocols in place around fixing boilers and things like that. You know, the the addition of this federal monitor, while very clearly warranted in a lot of ways, also creates this whole other layer of bureaucracy and oversight. The federal monitor is going to be paid over time tens and tens of millions of dollars that could be going towards things like new boilers. It's, It's a very tricky dynamic. I think there's some real questions about how necessary this this monitor is. But of course, at the same time, NYCHA has just been run so poorly, and we had additional revelations come out in the last couple of years around lead exposure for, for kids, just real problems. But one of the biggest questions that has remained in 2019 and now goes forward to 2020 is, can the city really move ahead on a plan to bring in the funds needed to repair NYCHA and get the properties up to a state of good standing. Right, because one of the signal features of this settlement was there really is no new federal money involved at all, even though that has been the biggest part of NYCHA's fiscal struggles, not not uh, absolving them of management problems. And the, the money that is supposed to kind of make up that gap is through things like converting units to Section 8 and developing space on NYCHA, all of which has been, there has been some progress, but a fa- fairly halting um, uh, sign of progress so far. When they will get to the number they need to get to to make a difference, it, it seems years out. And, you know, this goes back to some of these questions about de Blasio. And you have de Blasio, they brought in the federal monitor, then together they basically came to an agreement about a new chair and CEO, Greg Russ, for the Housing Authority. He's been on the job a few months now. Um, the federal monitor is Bart Schwartz. So you have this new leadership and oversight in place. You still have de Blasio there. Um, but there has been no clear sort of joint effort to aggressively move ahead with these plans. It does seem like the the Section 8, the RAD conversion, has been moving quicker than some of the other pieces, but there is very little sign that this infill development, think of it what you may, is moving ahead to bring in the revenue that's supposed to be part of this revitalization plan. And so whether the mayor and his his compatriots here are really going to aggressively push that is a big open-ended question here at the end of 2019 that will continue into 2020. Story number five for us was probably the most awaited and fraught personnel decision in city history. It was unlikely that Mr. Garner thought he was in such poor health that a brief struggle with the police would cause his death. 
He should have decided against resisting arrest, but a man with family lost his life, and that is an irreversible tragedy. And a hardworking police officer with a family, a man who took this job to do good, to make a difference in his home community, has now lost his chosen career. And that is a different kind of tragedy. In this case, the unintended consequence of Mr. Garner's death must have a consequence of its own. Therefore, I agree with the Deputy Commissioner of Trials legal findings and recommendations. It is clear that Daniel Pantaleo can no longer effectively serve as a New York City police officer. Bring out the court's verdict in this case, I take no pleasure. I know that many will disagree with this decision, and that is their right. There are absolutely no victors here today, not the Garner family, not the community at large, and certainly not the courageous men and women of the police department who put their own lives on the line every single day in service and to the people of this great city. Today is a day of reckoning, but can also be a day of reconciliation. That was Commissioner O'Neill, now former Commissioner O'Neill of the Police Department this summer, explaining his decision to abide by the recommendation of the internal trial judge and fire officer Daniel Pantaleo for his role in the encounter that led to the death that killed Eric Garner in Staten Island in 2014. Right. This is one of these events that happened fairly early in de Blasio's tenure that basically then has hung over the entire tenure, even after Pantaleo being fired by O'Neill. You know, it it will continue to just be part of the dialogue around de Blasio and policing and his, you know, his legacy around these issues. The fact that Pantaleo was on the force for so long after Garner died um, and a variety of other aspects of that, whether the NYPD is really implementing some of the changes that de Blasio promised in the wake of Garner's death. All of these issues continue to come up, and now we've even seen an additional change at the top of the NYPD um, as this is all all gone on. Right. I mean, the Garner incident is a tragedy uh, in its first dimension, but it also embraces, as you said, so many of the things that have dogged de Blasio through his mayoralty, the idea that police officers feel he does not have their back or that he's anti-police. That goes down to some of the comments made in the early days after that killing. Uh, And on the other hand, the fact that the very kind of broken windows policing that led to the encounter is something that de Blasio, at least in word, embraced for for many years and really didn't move away from until Commissioner Bratton moved on. Uh, Even though the numbers were coming down, his embrace of that as a philosophy was something he really held on to. And we see that tension uh, continuing, you know. Uh, talking about now gang policing is something that we've discussed on the show recently uh, that the mayor is still defending um, as part of this larger conversation around criminal justice reform. One area where there was significant change in that this year, or at least change was solidified, was on the question of closing Rikers, the city council formalizing the land use moves to create the new jails, and as part of that, Within a cumbersome process, ensuring that Rikers would uh, would would ultimately be be closed. Right, and this was one of the biggest conversations in city government and city politics of 2019. Was will they actually vote to create four new jails, some replacing existing facilities, but you know basically building from the ground up uh, four new jails and. In conjunction with it, what would the size of those buildings be, which is always part of the sort of land use discussion around new development, in this case being a a facility, a jail facility, but that then relates to what is the population of people being detained in those jails and things like broken windows policing and the philosophy of the mayor and the philosophy of the police commissioner. 
Not to mention the criminal justice reforms that passed in Albany earlier this year, which allowed them to have a totally different estimate for the number of people that will be detained in these jails at any time, getting it down to really unbelievably low numbers um, in the 3,000 range across the city when you had well over, what, 20,000 people incarcerated a couple of decades ago in New York City. So that's the projections. They voted through the jails plan, and now it's going to be a obviously a, a several-year process of closing down the Rikers facilities and building these new ones. And meanwhile, on the state level, there has been this move in the past couple of months to question whether some of those reforms went too far or whether they did not come with sufficient infrastructure. You know, the bail reforms, some people are questioning the number of offenses for which bail, cash bail, is now basically prohibited, whether that exposes people to a potential public safety risk, takes discretion on judges' hands. There's been some pushback on that. Um, and then questions about discovery reform and whether or not, um, first of all, whether the reforms themselves are sound and whether district attorneys have the capacity to implement them to make sure they're sharing the files in a way that's safe, to make sure they're going for protective orders when they need to shield witness names and things like that. There's been a pushback. There's been a, a, a pushback to the pushback. <laughs> and we'll see whether Albany takes up any of that. At the same time, there are still elements of the criminal justice reform agenda that were not touched last year that are central to the city's plan to close Rikers, particularly dealing with parole reform. A tremendous number of people who end up going into Rikers and in the state prison system are people who are not being arrested for new crimes but for violations of parole, some as very technical violations. It's a kind of messed up system. It's a huge portion of the people who are on Rikers every day. And I know it's something they're going to try to get to this year, whether or not the environment lends itself to it, I don't know. Right. I think there was something like that was the only population of people in Rikers that was actually was growing. growing yeah, right. Exactly. It was the parole violation. So that will be fascinating to watch. I'll just say sort of in closing on this um, story, which is our, our fifth one of our top 10 here on, on criminal justice, policing, um, the new jails that were, were voted through the city council is... You know, this ongoing discussion, as you got it, about de Blasio's support for broken windows policing, he now refuses to sort of use that term and says, we don't use that term anymore. You know, it's quality of life policing because people want, um, you know, quality of life issues policed in the city and they want them policed aggressively, but they want them policed aggressively with also a very careful hand. And this is something that new police commissioner Dermot Shea has talked about in his initial remarks becoming police commissioner and will be a very important piece as we go from 2019 into 2020, watching how the police department under Dermot Shea not only implements some of these, helps implement some of these criminal justice reforms, because again, when, you know, policy is set at the state level or the city level, there's always a lot of discretion in implementation. There's a lot of questions around how district attorneys and police officials will interpret them and will execute them. Um, and so that'll be a lot uh of fodder for, for the new year. So you're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI. We are going through the top 10 stories of 2019, according to our two-person unscientific <laughs> poll. Uh, number one was Democratic control of Albany and all the stuff they passed. Number two, rent regulation reform. Number three was Bill de Blasio's ill-fated presidential campaign. Number four, the NYCHA settlement and some of the progress, halting progress there. And number five was criminal justice reform and the conversation around it. Moving on to story number six, here is what former council speaker and current CEO of Women in Need, Christine Quinn, said on our show recently. And particularly on this night, when it is so cold and unexpectedly wintry, those people who have said, if you open a shelter, I will burn it down, those pro people who protest, 
against having a good roof over a six-year-old child's health, a child's head, really think about why you hate homeless children, why you hate homeless people, why you're so vicious on a night like tonight when there's over 60,000 people in shelter and our obligation is win and good people's obligations and the mayor's obligation is to stare down those hateful people in the face and say, we are moving forward. That was the former speaker addressing people who have protested against homeless shelters in some areas of the city, in that particular case, a reference to the Glendale debate. Uh, she was speaking about the anti-shelter fervor, which really was one of the features of the discussion about homelessness in 2019. And this is obviously a discussion that hasn't you know, really gone anywhere. This homelessness is basically in the top, you know, 10 stories of, of every year, certainly since Mayor de Blasio has been in office and well before that. Um, and it, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. While the administration has in some ways gotten a bit of a handle on the homelessness crisis, as they say, broken the trajectory of homelessness increase, we still have somewhere in the neighborhood of 75,000 people in various shelters, um, you know, the mayor has taken uh, a, a aggressive approach in terms of putting a lot of pieces in place, but he's also taken a very modest approach in terms of the goals for reducing the homeless census. And it's it's a very tricky situation because in some in ways you look at how de Blasio has approached this and you don't get the sense that there's this real urgency to it, you know, that he, he recognizes it as a major problem. He's putting plans forward and they've you know, reinstituted voucher programs and they've done a variety of other things. They're opening new shelters, getting out of hotels and cluster sites, but you still get this sense that it's sort of just, you know, another sort of city issue to, to take care of. It's interesting. He has been pushed by that on advocates. He's been pushed by advocates on this for years. And this year, I think the pushing may have finally gotten to him. Just in the past few weeks, the end of the year, we've seen an agreement with the city council to do the 15% set aside when there's a city subsidized housing project. 15% of units will go to be people who are coming out of the shelter system. And then more recently, de Blasio making a few kind of um, seemingly spastic moves on street homelessness, announcing a new outreach program that was criticized and then announcing, in fact, not just outreach, but the provision of more safe haven beds, a commitment to ending long-term street homelessness um, at some point in the not-too-distant future. Uh, that seemed to be him sort of laying down a marker that he hadn't previously laid down in both cases to really try to meaningfully change from managing what he says is a new status quo to maybe changing that status quo. Right. I mean, when he, you know, he's sort of rejiggered his approaches to homelessness a number of times, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, you want to reevaluate your programming and add new programs and change your approach where it's not working or, you know, react to crises, uh, hopefully not too much, but but you want to do that. Um, but when he announced his turning the tide plan in early 2017, his election, re-election year, you know, that was like a big sweeping new plan. And even in even with that plan that, you know, he was only talking about reducing the shelter census by about 2,500 people out of what, what they were using as the number of, of around 60,000, because that's the sort of Department of Homeless Services shelters. And there's right. a variety of others that that um, where people can find shelter. So 
as he's moving into year seven here, this is clearly a piece of his mayoralty that has has really dogged him because he was supposed to come in with the, the type of lens where he was really going to address this issue. And instead, he's really sort of puttered along with it. And it's been an area where people have raised so many questions, including why not devote more of your affordable housing plan to people coming out of homelessness? And as you said, he just made a new compromise on that. Um, but it, but to do it at the end of 2019, again, is indicative that this is still such a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Speaking of works in progress, story number seven is an interesting one because I remember the night that Bill de Blasio got elected, standing at the back of the room at the armory and hearing a couple of environmental advocates advocates talk about how they were really nervous because Bill de Blasio had almost no record on environmental issues. And he's had an interesting record since of some pretty aggressive attempts to reduce the city's carbon footprint and some halting moves, if you want to call it that, on making the city more resilient to what are probably the inevitable effects of climate change. And this year we saw some movement on both of those fronts. Right. And I think, you know, de Blasio worked with the city council. I think this was a bit more pushed by the city council, certainly than the mayor's office, on some very new aggressive regulations around building energy emissions, which is a major source of of pollution. Um, and so that's moving forward. De Blasio wound up rebranding that as the New York City Green New Deal. It was part of him getting ready to launch this presidential campaign. So who knows how much that came into it, or if it's just, you know, sort of a branding exercise when the Green New Deal was, you know, at the tip of lots of folks' tongues, whether it's in Washington or elsewhere. Um, but but certainly that's going to be a key piece moving forward for the city of attempts to have New York City contribute to what should be a national and global effort to reduce carbon emissions. And a state effort, too. We saw the state pass uh, major legislation as part of this blue wave, the green wave in Albany this spring and, and summer to put the state on a course to really reduce and in some cases, I think, eliminate um, uh, fossil fuels and move to a uh, sort of zero fossil fuels uh, state electricity mix, energy mix, uh, in a number of years. And we've seen already some tension about the implementation of that around uh, the governor's decision not to approve a pipeline, whether that was going to contribute to present-day natural gas uh, shortages, um, you know, so some questions about the transition. Right. The, the roles of natural gas and of nuclear power are really important here and big questions that remain. Meanwhile, New York has set itself on a path to developing a lot more renewable energy in the in the forms of wind and solar and that is going to be a very important theme to watch because it involves a significant change in not only where energy comes from but also the economy of the state and we're going to see wind farms popping up and you know it's going to be a very important um management job, really, for state government to implement this and some very tricky, aggressive goals that the governor wound up agreeing to after a lot of consternation in Albany that I, you know, we'll see if New York is able to meet them. They're they're pretty aggressive. And then meanwhile, you have, you know, the city taking some actions around building emissions. You know, de Blasio's had a bit of a mixed record on some of this stuff. You know, he's definitely moved to sort of green the city fleet um, but he's also expanded the city fleet quite a bit. And, you know, they argue that some of that was replacing vehicles that were damaged during Sandy and mm-hmm. things like that. But really, you know, I think he 
is by no means sort of an environmentalist first. And again, he's also obviously just, you know, one of these things that keeps popping up. You know, he's poo-pooed this idea that he shouldn't be driving in this fleet of SUVs from the Upper East Side to Park Slope to work out. He very rarely takes the bus or the train to sort of encourage more New Yorkers to do that stuff. Um, He would say, just look at my policies, okay? In some ways, that's a fair argument. Um, But he's got sort of a a mixed record on that anyway. And some people look at the policies and say that, you know, again, on reducing emissions, on on prospective efforts to try to lower the city's carbon footprint, there has been some progress, or there are the seeds for progress. But when it comes to dealing with the effects, that he has been much less bold. And so you saw this back-and-forth debate about this park on the Lower East Side and how to deal with that. And the the city finally came to a decision uh, to kind of bounce back and forth from the community plan to the city plan to something in the middle. And then de Blasio announcing this Lower Manhattan Initiative, which was kind of a big splash, pardon the pun, and now a lot less detail as to what was actually meant in terms of whether you're going to extend the coastline and try to create a buffer zone, how you would do that. And what folks in other neighborhoods say is that that's all well and good, but the city has a 500 plus mile coastline. A lot of neighborhoods where there have been very few steps to make the city any measurably safer than it was seven years ago for Sandy. A lot of this is waiting for the Corps of Engineers to decide, the Army Corps of Engineers to decide if and how it wants to create some sort of harbor-wide barrier. But there is this sense of the clock is ticking, the storms are coming, and the defenses just aren't there. Right. There's a variety of strategies that have been pointed to that need to be implemented, a variety of projects that have been either you know, green lit or said to be in the offing and just remarkably little progress made seven years after Sandy. Um, you know, the other thing I just wanted to mention on this topic was this plastic bag ban that the state passed that should be going into effect and another of these items that we have to see how implementation goes, are there unintended consequences, um, you know, how aggressive is the quote unquote ban that's not fully a ban. Um, so a lot in the mix on this front, but I think to your point on the resiliency question, in two more years for New York City under de Blasio and this sort of regime, there needs to be marked progress in terms of getting some of these projects really going. We we have seen, and we, we talked to Staten Island Borough President Jimmy Otto, something move ahead on Staten Island on the east uh, shore seawall, but that was much more of a project that seemed to, you know, to come in from the federal government. Um, And so, you know, the city needs to take, I think, a bit more leadership on this on this question. And story number eight in our top 10 review of 2019, we'll let City Council Speaker Corey Johnson introduce the topic here. In New York City, someone dies in traffic violence every 1.8 days. These are not accidents. Every single one of them is preventable. Smart street design saves lives. We need to make our streets safer. We need to finally break the car culture in New York City. And when we make our streets safe, we make our streets better. We know this, but we're moving way too slowly. We need at least 50 miles of protected bike lanes a year. Real protected bike lanes. We need to dramatically increase the amount of pedestrian space that we create. We need every bus route to have lanes that are enforced with cameras or physical barriers. Giving our streets back to people is good for business, it's good for the environment, and it's good for all New Yorkers. 
And that was City Council Speaker Corey Johnson with one of these sort of big catchphrases that really took off this year in New York public policy, this idea of breaking the car culture in New York. Some people have taken that to mean, you know, this war on cars and that car owners are bad and there should be, you know, we're going to try to ban cars in New York. That's not what it means, but, you know, maybe the speaker let that conversation get a little uh, going a little bit too fast. Um, a, a bold, I will say this. A, it's a bold thing for someone to make, a bold pronunciation for someone to make who's planning a run for, for mayor, who is running for mayor in 2021, uh, given that there are a lot of people who drive in the city or depend on cars one way or the other. Right. And we know it's, you know, notorious in New York City that people don't want their parking messed with, for example. And he's talking about the need to reduce parking spots to put things in like bike lanes and bus lanes. So, you know, Corey Johnson really moved this conversation ahead in 2019. He gave his State of the City speech, his first one, where he called for municipal control of the subways and buses. You know, we can almost put that aside for a second, but he also introduced this idea of a streets master plan, which wound up coming to a compromise with the mayor and being passed, a very significant achievement, and that will require the Department of Transportation in a couple of years to put forth a plan to add in lots more bu- bike lanes and lots more bus lanes and a million square feet, something like that, of pedestrian space, uh, really a reimagining of city street use. And that has coincided at the same time with this 14th Street busway, which has mostly been seen as a success so far. So we're seeing a whole new conversation around street use in the city. Yeah, I mean, this is a visionary idea. You know, I don't know if John, how much Johnson means by it, how much he'll stick by it, but really in terms of rethinking the city, like a fundamental rethinking of how the city has been shaped for something like 100 years. And when we think about how much it does revolve around automobiles and the way you know streets are organized, the way neighborhoods are organized, our policies. Um, it's a it's a real challenge to that. And what's interesting to me is that as someone I know you don't drive very much, I, I drive frequently, and it has become much, much, much more difficult to drive around the city, even in the past two or three years. I mean it's always been difficult. Uh, but even driving in the outer boroughs where I live Locally, any time of day or night, three in the morning, three in the afternoon, it's getting very, very hard to drive around the city. I think it's because of deliveries. I think it's because of four higher vehicles. And so I think, oddly enough, that you might find a surprising number of people who do rely on their cars acknowledging at least that there is some kind of problem. Whether they'll be willing to get them up all the time, I don't know. But I think you'll find people who are willing to say, you know what, the way that we have our streets organized now just isn't working, and they might look forward to a way to get rid of their car. Well, I think you hit on a couple important things. One is four-hire vehicles, and the other one is deliveries. And we've seen some really, well, we've seen a lot of discussion on the four-hire vehicle front from back during de Blasio's first term when he tried to put a cap on Uber. They eventually put the cap on on four-hire vehicles. But then recently, we've seen a lot more reporting, I think, on just the incredible number of deliveries that are happening from Amazon and elsewhere um, across the city that that do seem to really clog things up. And that's where you, if, if, it's, if you thread the needle the right way, you could see some real res- support, as you said, even from people who rely on their cars in the city to, to do more around these regulations. I think one of the biggest challenges in front of Speaker Johnson and others is how you blend the better access for bicyclists and buses with allowing people to use their cars and get around the city when they need to, while you're also really encouraging them to not do that when it's it's available to take a bus, for example, or to 
get on the subway. And that ties, of course, to the buses and the subways running better. And there's a little bit of a chicken and the egg thing with the buses, of course, and people getting out of their cars. Because if more people don't get out of their cars and get onto buses, the buses can't move quicker. Uh, and if you don't see the buses moving quicker, you might not get out of your car. So, And it is a complex <laughs> urban environment. And it is, to some degree, a zero-sum game. And we've seen this year a huge spike in the number of cyclist deaths. Um, and that can involve run-ins with passenger cars, delivery vehicles, even with buses. Um, so figuring out a way to try to convert people from existing forms of transit to others in real time, um, on real streets, with people making real decisions, is is very, very difficult. And so you know we've done some reporting on enforcement around Vision Zero and some lapses there. Uh, it's a very complicated uh, puzzle involving enforcement, as you mentioned, some degree of coercion and some degree of invitation uh, being key to making it work and finding that mix is going to be pretty difficult. And you know, you, you, you touch on Vision Zero. This is obviously a key piece of de Blasio's agenda, his legacy, but it's another area where he's been probably a little more timid than he could or should be, you know, and, and this is where you've had a lot of advocates and experts around street use and street safety, you know, really call him to task for not being a bit more aggressive. And that's where this streets master plan legislation came in. But again, this is now coming in towards the end of his mayoralty um, and isn't going to be implemented until the very end and for the next mayor. Um, you know, I also want to mention on this topic of the discussion around breaking the car culture, which again means sort of reorienting the city's streetscape and transportation network towards mass transit and uh, pedestrians and bikers, that congestion pricing is coming, uh, which we'll, we'll see what the impact on that is. The, the, so much of the focus about that has been on the revenue it will generate, that we're losing sight over the question of whether the congestion piece ha is, mm -hmm. is impacted at all. Um, and they also passed this private waste hauling uh, overhaul legislation through the city council, again, that is seen as both um, a safety measure uh, and also around, you know, helping a little bit with street congestion. You mentioned driving around at 3 a.m. I won't ask you what you're doing driving around at 3 a.m., but, you know, a lot of the a lot of the um, private waste haulers are going all through the night and things like that. Um, so it's not the most traffic time, but it also is a matter of, of course, street safety and emissions and things like that. So that fits into this discussion as well. And the other thing that's happened in 2019 on this front too, um, you know, that we should, we, that we really need to think about is, um, and this will tie into our, our ninth story of our top 10, is the fair fares program and how that's being implemented. And again, something that's seen a little bit of a, of a slow implementation. So story nine, now that Ben has totally let it out of the bag and spoiled everything, is the MTA and the ongoing discussions about how to improve that, how to stabilize that. Um, some big moves this year with the approval of a capital plan, um, obviously fair fares and its implementation being under scrutiny, and as he just mentioned, the looming arrival of a congestion pricing plan, one of the big uh, achievements of Democrats in Albany just about 10 years after Mayor Bloomberg's efforts to get such a plan uh, in place, uh, one, one that is being designed by an outside panel uh, and remain shrouded in some bureaucratic mystery, but is, yeah, is coming in some form. I don't form. even think they've started yet. You know, right. again, this was like a legislative trick by the governor and the and the state legislature that congestion pricing won't even kick in until after the upcoming 2020 state legislative elections. Um, and so we're not looking at implementation until 
basically the beginning of 2021. Um, but it is coming, and it was a huge storyline of 2019 that they did pass a congestion pricing program. The revenue from that program, as I mentioned, is is what a lot of people have been focused on. And one of the key reasons I think that it got across the finish line is because they were really struggling about how to fund the MTA capital plan. And we now have a new MTA capital plan. It still has a little bit of um, finalizing to happen, but of over $50 billion for the five-year plan. And it's supposed to really get the system up to a state of good repair, resignaling, lots of other things, and congestion pricing was a key part of that. We saw in 2019 an incredible amount of attention on congestion pricing and the MTA generally, where you had Governor Cuomo finally really take ownership of it, even though he kept saying, I don't control the MTA, but okay, you want me to take charge, now I'll take charge. And a little bit of smoke and mirrors, I think, in that process of saying, well, we need a transformation plan at the MTA. We're going to bring in a new chair CEO. We need a chief transformation officer. Neither you or I is a everyday MTA beat reporter, obviously, and our publications don't even cover it on such a regular basis. But it is... So it's very hard to keep track, even for us, what has happened with the MTA this year, the different audits, different plans that were mandated, um, the overhaul of leadership. They're reducing a bunch of positions, but then they're adding other positions. Um, Andy Byford apparently resigned, but then rescinded the resignation. <laughs> it has been a wild year related to the MTA, and they basically have to implement a whole bunch of new stuff. You know, Basically, they have to fly the plane while they're rebuilding the engine. Right. And while they're considering uh, what kind of personnel to have and what they should do, you know, just in the last couple of weeks of the year, the MTA board, considering this plan, the governor put forward to uh, station 500 new police officers in the subways. Part of, I think, a combined sort of crackdown on perceived disorder in the system, homelessness and, and whatnot, but also on this uh issue of fare evasion, something Andy Byford has raised over a couple of years, the idea that people are, because of the lower police presence, um, choosing not to pay fares on subways and buses more, and that that is actually making a dent in the MTA's coffers, where fare box revenue, as they call it, has always been an important part of the mix. Um, advocates will push back on that. It's not as big a deal. Enforcement's not the answer. But that is something that is going to be part of the commute next year is more cops underground. Right. It seems it seems like that's all moving full speed ahead. There are some real questions about whether this makes fiscal sense for the MTA, about how MTA and additional MTA police force will interact with the NYPD, which is really in charge of policing the subways. The buses are often only a little bit a part of this conversation, even though that's apparently, based on the flawed data that the MTA has, that's apparently where the bigger fare evasion problem as a percentage is happening. Um, I'm much more of a regular subway rider than bus rider, though I ride the bus sometimes. Um, I haven't witnessed the, the types of really high bus fare evasion that they claim, but again, I'm not riding the most busy routes either. Um that's going to be something that unfolds in the new year that I'm very worried about because it has the potential for some really ugly incidents underground. We've, we're always going to see some of those, and we see those things related to policing above ground and below ground. But when you're talking about additions to the force and this question around MTA police versus NYPD police, it's a recipe for some potentially troubling dynamics, not to mention questions around 
criminalizing poverty and, and things like that that are part of this discussion around why don't they just put this money towards an expansion of fairfares, you know, right. things like that. But there are legitimate issues, I think, with people who can't afford the fare skipping it. And, and how you crack down on that is is a topic for another time, but certainly... <laughs> I think just to, to wrap up this topic and maybe tie this together with the previous one about car culture, one interesting, I think, so far positive experiment this year, and this ties into a lot of what we've been talking about, is the 14th Street busway, which, you know, is because of the shutdown uh, of the L, uh, partial sh- occasional shutdown of the L for repairs, um, a, a plan which would have seemed radical years ago to give buses basically the full run and, uh, and uh, other non-personal vehicles uh, the full run of 14th Street seems so far to have worked fairly well. It's an interesting sort of little experiment that's occurred, and I think probably like a positive note from the year that that has gone off, and sure, not without a hitch, but with generally positive reviews. As far as I can tell, it's undoubtedly been a success. They just recently released the first study by Sam Schwartz's firm of how it's going. It seems like obviously bus speeds across 14th Street have increased significantly. And apparently, according to the study, there has not been that big an impact on side street traffic, which of course was was one of the biggest concerns. And when they also instituted new bike lanes on the on the nearby streets, apparently cycling has also increased quite a bit on 12th and 13th Street. So all it seems like all initial signs point to this being a success. And the big question it then tees up, of course, is where else should they look to do busways across the city? And will this be something that you see someone like Corey Johnson really make a big push for? Uh, in 2020, I would not be at all surprised. And finally, we come to story 10. As Ben mentioned early on, this is not a year that we typically consider an election year. But lo and behold, there were three election nights. And this was a speech that was given on one of them. But I know there's a young black boy somewhere who's young. He's trying to find a space in the world. Nobody knows he cries himself to sleep sometimes. Nobody knows how much he misses his father. Nobody knows what he's going through. And this world tells you you have to hide it and can't talk about it. But I got something to say to that young man that I think about very often. My name is Jamani Williams. I'm the public advocate of New York City. That was Jumani Williams, uh, his acceptance back in February uh, when he won the special election, the very crowded special election for public advocate, replacing Tish James, who had been recently elected and taken office as the state attorney general. Uh, Williams talking very emotionally about his own uh, journey as a, as a black man, as a person who had gone through therapy and really a very uh, personal and, and, and brave moment to reveal that at that, at that point. But a, a bit of personal drama in a, uh, what ended up being actually a fairly interesting election year, even though it was an off year. I mean, thinking back to that public advocate special election, that was lots of fun and very fascinating and very interesting and crowded field, as you said. I mean, it's funny to think back to that at the beginning of this year as we now hit the end of it. Um, but, you know, people sometimes mock, and this happened on our show even, you know, the position of public advocate. Uh, but it's a, it's an important position. It's a citywide office. It do, it's, it's not nothing by any means. And we've obviously seen um, the last two public advocates go on to become mayor and attorney general. So it can be a springboard. And Jamani Williams, you know, 
of course, everybody's got their unique background, but with his background coming into this office as a housing organizer, someone as a police reformer, he ran for lieutenant governor and almost beat Kathy Hochul in 2018. This is basically his, you know, sort of consolation prize after that. Now, all of a sudden, he's a, he's a citywide elected official with a, with a pretty big perch and a, and a loud voice. You know, he's always been someone that's been good at using the bully pulpit, but now he's got an even bigger one. So significant. Um, and that election, just looking back on it, was also significant for folks uh, that did not win it, such as, you know, former city council speaker Melissa Mark Viverito, who's now trying to run for Congress in the Bronx. Um, but, you know, if she had won that public advocate special election, very likely would have been then a mayoral candidate. Jamani Williams says he's definitely not running in 2021. So, um, but then he went on to to win re-election again in the November election with very modest competition. Although we had a great chat with Joe Borelli about his campaign. Um, but there were other elections this year. Yeah, as well. in between the two, of course, we had uh, the June election date, and that was when the Queens District Attorney primary, a fascinating race because Dick Brown had been there for a very long time. These DA jobs do not open up very often. Uh, District Attorney Judge Brown uh, had resigned and then died uh, uh, actually before before the race took place, before the election took place. It was a crowded field, but it ended up being basically a battle between the insurgent Democratic Socialists of America wing in Tiffany Caban and the establishment Democratic wing in then Queensboro President Melinda Katz. And, and, and it went a long, to a recount. A long, yes. long election, yeah. <laughs> uh, that was... I mean that was maybe, and we're and we're, it's good that we're sort of using it in our wrap up. I mean this this list is not necessarily in order of importance. That that was one of the most important uh, events of the year. I mean it was also one of the most interesting political events of the year. Um, obviously, the difference between Tiffany Caban being elected and Melinda Katz being elected is significant. Um, even though Katz promised a pretty serious reform agenda, the idea of a young public defender taking over with a pretty radical view of of how to approach criminal justice from the district attorney's office as the top prosecutor in a borough of two plus million people, you know, there was a lot on the line there. Uh, you know, Tiffany Caban gave an acceptance speech on primary night and Katz declined to uh, to exit the race. And then it went to the recount that Katz wound up winning. Uh, really a lot of political drama there and, and really, uh, you know, significant importance. And now, of course, that will kick off a special Queensboro president election, which we'll have the pleasure of, of looking at early in the new year. What did not have much drama but was fairly interesting was the charter revision process. That was what the November election was largely about. Uh, The five questions on uh, Civilian Complaint Review Board, ranked choice voting, some budget reforms, uh, you know, some shifting of power away from the mayor to other officials in terms of guaranteed budget. Uh, an interesting set of reforms fell short on land use in terms of what people had expected, but, uh, you know, a, a certainly a, a substantive set of changes to how the city is governed. And obviously we'll see how the CCRB reforms play out. Those were significant. They were they were opposed vehemently by some of the police unions and their allies, but really, you know, probably the biggest takeaway was question number one on the ballot, which, which, which was the approval of ranked choice voting and how that's going to impact city elections starting in, in 2021 will be absolutely uh, fascinating and is going to shake right. up the mayor's race, among others. It was going to be a fascinating race anyway. Well, that was how it looked Woo! to us in All right. 2019, quite a year. Uh, we'll be back soon to talk about what looms ahead in 2020, which will, I'm sure, be even more fascinating. Uh, until then, Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah, Please. Happy Wednesday. <laughs> uh, I am Jared Murphy from City Limits. He's been Max from Gotham Gazette. Have a great holiday in the greatest city in the world.